Oh, Father, we would indeed carefully and quietly come before you at this time and with a humble heart and a contrite spirit, take your word and open it and and tremble in your presence. Father, we are a needy people this morning. And we're a highly distracted people this morning. And we're callous and insensitive so often to who you are and the reality of your demands. And even insensitive to your great love and compassion and care and kindness. So renew us, Lord, and strengthen us. Let your word do its perfect work. And thank you, Lord, for this historical record that we move to this morning. And what a great testimony it is to us of godly living and disciplined obedience. And may we emulate it well and learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 39 as we come to a a very familiar and powerful story in the life of Joseph. As you're turning, let me remind you of the old story. It's a folklore. Um, I imagine you've heard of it in some fashion or another of the famous outlaw bandit Jose Rivera. And he would forage up into South Texas back before the turn of the 20th century and terrorize small communities, robbing and thieving and plundering, and then plunge back south of the border and to his hideaways. And these folks of the communities began to tire of this threat on their lifestyle and their peaceful communities. And so... They hired a Texas ranger that was well known for his strength to go down into Mexico and, and hunt, hunt down this outlaw bandit, Jose Rivera. And so he did. He headed down and he put the word out that he was going to recover their stolen goods or he would bring Jose Rivera back dead or alive one way or another. And so he starts putting the word out. He tracks him down and he finds himself in this small, dusty, remote town where there's a little cantina and he goes in and there's a a Mexican cowboy standing at the bar and he says, have you seen Jose Rivera? I'm here to hunt him down, dead or alive. And the cowboy turns and kind of nods and points with his chin to a shadowy corner in the back corner of the cantina and there is a big man with his feet up on the table snoring with his hat over his face. He said, that is Jose Rivera. So the Texas Ranger walks over there and he kicks the man's feet down and knocks his hat off and he said, are you Jose Rivera? And the guy says, me no speak it English. And so he gestures to the guy, am I okay with this, Hector? Okay. This is, this is um, just the way the story goes, all right? And, um, and, and so he beckons to the Mexican cowboy to come over and he says, tell this guy that I'm a Texas Ranger and ask him if he's Jose Rivera. So he translates and he said, yes, he is Jose Rivera. He said, ask him, where did he put all the stolen goods that he's been stealing from the people up in Texas? Tell him I need to know I can take him back and he can live peacefully or I'll shoot him down right now. So the guy speaks in his Spanish and 
Jose Rivera sits up a little straighter in his chair and his eyes get big and he says to the cowboy, you tell him to go out the door, turn right, go one mile down the road, turn left, there's a big oak tree with a rock under it and underneath that rock is a hole and everything's in it, take it and get out of here. The cowboy looks at him and he looks back at the Texas Ranger and he kind of stammered it a little bit and his eyes got even wider than Jose's and he said, Jose says, shoot me down now. You see, every once in a while in our lives, we encounter pivotal moments, don't we? Where the opportunity is just too good to pass up. That's the opportunity that young Joseph faces today. There's a gold mine right there in the form of a sexual temptation that is just enormous. And in Genesis chapter 39, we have the wonderful account of Joseph as who's still a young man. You recall that he's been sold into slavery by his brothers. And today we deal with the topic that is so evident in this passage, the topic of dealing with sexual temptation. I don't think I need to spend much time in our introduction before we read our text this morning telling you that this is a relevant topic for our culture and our time. You can't buy groceries or gas without having it thrown in your face. It is everywhere around us. It has saturated the entertainment world. It has become very, very socially acceptable to live at the edge of or cross the lines of sexual propriety. It has highly impacted the church as well as the rate of sexual immorality among our young people, as well as the rate of adultery among our married people, according to some statisticians, is very close, if not equal to that, in the world around us. As we read Genesis chapter 39, I want you to see what an incredible man Joseph is. I want us to learn from his mindset, from his theology, you might say. I want you to see that though he has an opportunity that would cause many a man to stumble, that Joseph stands as an example of learning to us today in upright, godly, holy living, even in the midst of a sexually saturated, sinful world. He's a model for us that we can live in godliness and holiness and in self-control. So let's read the story. I'll break it down as we go. There are seven parts that I have to the story. And so you listen to these parts. And then later, we will have some lessons from Joseph that we want to apply directly to our lives. We're going to back up to chapter 1 and uh, see that I want to just say it's nice to see Bobby Erickson back. There's been a number of weeks since she's been in church and I didn't get to see her. Bobby, we're continually praying with you. I think you know that. She has some company with her from out of town. We welcome you folks. Not to interrupt the message, but I just uh, glanced up and saw you there. Bobby, welcome, and uh, continue to communicate our love to Sam when you go home today. So let's read, beginning with verse 1 through 7. That was the passage we left off with as we talked about Joseph's transition into Egypt and the circumstances that he encounters. And we'll read the entire chapter, and uh, let's uh, just kind of break it down as we go. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. 
The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. What a good line, huh? And make sure you note that line and underline it even if you write in your Bible. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, he could see that. And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. We don't know how much time goes by right here between verses 2 and verse 3. We just know that enough time went by for him to work his way to the top and to see the favor of Pharaoh come upon him because God was blessing everything that his hand touched. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care, verse 4, everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. These were very productive days for Potiphar. And he knew that it was directly a result of Joseph's touch and Joseph's God blessing him. The residual effect was that Potiphar had never had a season in his life like this. It is also, as we reminded ourselves last week, a direct result of God's promise at the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless you and I will bless everyone around you, particularly those who will bless you. Then the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, verse 5, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So there we have the context of our story. Joseph is transitioning. He is maturing. He is stabilizing. He's working his way to the top. We know that he's been through an awful lot, being beat up by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sold to Ishmaelite slaves, carried down into Egypt, a brutal passage in his life. There is now a season of stability. And as we move on into the story and we are with Joseph in Potiphar's house, the first thing we see in the story happening next is, number one, an open invitation. An open invitation. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, the end of verse 6 says. You have here, evidently, the perfect combination of brains and biceps. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. And she said, come to bed with me. You talk about an open invitation in the Hebrew. Her invitation is two words only. It is very blunt, abrupt, and somewhat brash and brutal in context. Two words, do this. It is never used in the context of marriage. It is just a brief statement. It communicated right to the point of what she wanted. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her, really. We know that she's married to Potiphar. Some commentaries suggest that Potiphar was in a position where he would have been a eunuch. We don't know. It could have been that, that she was a very unfulfilled person in many ways in her life, that she was, in, in some sense, a, a potted plant in the household. She was there for her beauty. She was there to, to, to impress people for the sake of her husband. We don't know everything that was going on in her. We see her certainly as a very desperate and dangerous woman at this point. And she has been watching Joseph. She has been uh, noticing that he is definitely a desirable young man on all fronts. And it says that she gives this open invitation for him to lie down with her in her chamber. Notice that Joseph 
gives, number two, a thoughtful explanation. He doesn't run at this point. She says, come to bed with me, verse 8. But he refused. So he communicated immediately that he was not going that direction. His body language, his facial expression, the tone of voice, immediately, no, no. But he's not rude to her. She's, after all, his boss's wife. She, no doubt, is one of the people in the chain of command from whom he takes instruction and for whom he has been working for some time, caring for the needs around the house. Joseph, we're having a party tonight. Move those plants out onto the portico. Joseph, make sure the windows are washed. Yes, ma'am. Joseph, we need better food tonight. Do this, do that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No doubt there has been a lot of contact and exchange. She's been watching him. I am confident as well that Joseph was fully aware of who she was, what she looked like, and what she was all about. He said, with me in charge, verse 8, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. Verse 9, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. She comes to him with an open invitation, a two-word, blunt, in-your-face, open invitation. He he gives a 30-word response, beginning with, I could never do that, ma'am, because your husband trusts me. What a guy. A man of integrity. He knows where Potiphar is. He knows that the opportunity is available. He knows that this whole thing can work out. He knows that she controls the household. But this man of integrity cares so much about the element of trust between himself and his boss that he refuses to get close even to the borderline of appropriate behavior that his boss would have any question in his mind about his attitude, behavior, and his trust. He goes on with his explanation and he says, And how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How did Joseph know that? It wasn't written down for 400 more years. There is no written revelation essentially at this time. He had to have learned it at his father's knee. Perhaps even as a young teenager, through the failure of his brothers, his father Jacob would tell him, Joseph, don't you do that. That's a sin in the eyes of our God. Don't you do that. It is a wicked thing. Here is God's plan and design. And so on a twofold front, he gives a 30-word explanation. The trust of my boss demands that I say no. And secondly, ma'am, you need to understand this is a wicked thing. And it is sin. Apparent in his response is the reality that he could do nothing without the knowledge of God immediately in his life. A complete awareness that God would have for his behavior, no matter how thick the curtain was across the doorway. We see as we move on in our story that it doesn't stop there, however. And number three, we have the ongoing solicitation. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Verse 10, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, after day after day, 
Ongoing solicitation, which demanded from Joseph a strategy for number four, for avoiding the temptation. Avoiding the temptation, it says in the last part of verse 10, that he refused, so evidently there were more encounters, perhaps handwritten notes, perhaps gestures of the chin, the face, and the eyes, letting him know that right now is a great time, Joseph, and he would turn away, saying no with his body language, saying no with his behavior. Maybe there was even more verbal exchange where he would say, no, ma'am, I can't do that. No, ma'am, no, ma'am, no. To the point that he began to avoid her completely. Joseph's a real man. He has an imagination. He has feelings. He knows what's at stake here. He would try to not even be with her. No, I don't walk down that aisle. And I don't go down that street. And I don't go in that neighborhood. I stay away. This open invitation is responded to with the thoughtful explanation. With an emphasis on his boss and his God. The ongoing solicitation is responded to by Joseph's avoiding of the temptation until number five, we come to the heart of the story where Potiphar's wife reaches out in an act of desperation. Notice what it says. One day when he went into the house, verse 11, to attend to his duties, okay, he's responsible, he has to work there, she's part of the chain of command, no doubt, and none of the household servants was inside She's been waiting for this moment. She's been watching. I suspect Joseph was shrewd enough to change his daily patterns. If he's avoiding her, then she knows where to head him off when he goes down to check on those working in the vegetable garden. And then when he goes down to check at the milking barn. And then when he goes out to the fields, she just happens to know how to intersect with him. And so Joseph, I imagine, changes up his behavior patterns and he avoids her and avoids her. And she finally figures out that when he goes down this hallway to go to his office, he will be right there and she can come out this door and no one is in the house. And so the spider spins its web. And in an act of desperation, she moves from the visual temptation that she has been presenting to the verbal opportunities she has been announcing to the sensual, physical touch, and she grabs his body. And in her act of desperation, she grabs him. And isn't it interesting how, once again, a coat is used as evidence to to create a fabricated story about Joseph. And she screams. She's humiliated. She, no doubt, we don't know anything about her, don't know her name. I think on purpose, she's left in anonymity in history. No doubt she's beautiful. No doubt she is everything any man would want on the physical level. And she's not used to men turning her down at any level. And so she screams and she turns into a rage. And now she begins the different layers of number six, false accusation. The first layer is with the servants, the other servants. She screams so that servants come running from outside of the house. She calls the household servants. Look, she said, verse 14. 
This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She's lying. She's setting up her servants to be false witnesses later on to bear evidence that they had no business bearing. This is what she said. This is what happened. I came running in. There she was, all shook up, holding the coat. She screamed. Did you hear her scream? Well, no. Did you see Joseph? No. Do you know what happened? No. But this is what happened. This is what she said. She kept his cloak, verse 16, beside her until his master came home. Potiphar comes home and then she tells this story. That Hebrew slave. Do you notice how she now pulls the race card out? He's a Hebrew among Egyptians. There's a different skin color. There's a different culture represented. And now she's just pulling out all the stops. This lowlife. This Hebrew slave. We don't like him. And he came in. Everything she can do to manipulate the evidence, to manipulate the attitudes and the responses in a negative way, in an unjust way. And so the false accusation, number six, moves on into an unjust incarceration. Let's read the rest of the story. When his master heard the story, verse 19, he told his wife, saying, this is how your slave... She, Heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Compare that with verse 2. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. What a remarkable guy, this Joseph. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that, he, all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. We don't know exactly what went on in the mind of Potiphar. He is angry at the story that he hears from his wife. What exactly the anger springs up from, we're not totally sure. This is a capital offense, this attempted rape of an official's wife. His head should have rolled immediately. Potiphar is captain of the guard. Potiphar is the executioner for Pharaoh, the president of Egypt. His job is to whack people. His job is to hurt people bad. His job is to guard the king's prisoners in the dungeon while they're waiting their sentence and while they carry out their sentence. And I personally believe, I can't prove it exegetically, but I personally believe that if Potiphar believed for one second that Joseph had been inappropriate with his wife, he'd have knocked his head off so fast, the head would have rolled all the way down the hallway. He'd have done it himself right there. This is a proud, arrogant man. But he knew Joseph. I don't know what he's angry. He's angry about the circumstances for sure. He's angry that he's going to lose his best man. He's angry that, that because his bank accounts have been growing and his crops have been growing and his servant staff is happy for the first time in his life, there's no quarreling and, and things are running smoothly on the ranch and this woman's messing it up. I, I kind of take that angle a little bit. I think it's pretty evident to, and pretty easy to build a case reading between the lines that Potiphar and his wife didn't have too much to do with each other. And so Joseph goes to jail. He'll be there for a while. Years. Guy's innocent. Guy didn't do anything wrong. He just lived for the Lord. He just did what was right. 
Well, there's a number of applications that we can make. And as we close out our message today, I want to further deal with Joseph's response to the sexual temptation here. Very timely in light of our culture, our circumstances. It occurred to me that Joseph had a theology of running. Have you ever thought of that? What is theology? Theo means God. Okay? Theos, God. Ology, science. Biology, the, the, the study or science of living things. Bioology. Theology, the study of God. Do you know that you have a theology? You have a life theology. Some people call it their philosophy of life. And it may have some philosophical ramifications to it, but by, by and large, most of us operate our life at one level or another based upon our theology. That is, who is God? Has he spoken? What has he said? And how do I react to what God has said? We have theology divided down. Some people give it their life study. We have all kinds of categories of theology. We study Christology, for example, the doctrines of Christ, Christology, the study of Christ. And we know what we believe about Christ. We, we, we believe that he's the son of God, or we believe that he was just a very good prophet. We believe that he died and, and, and suffered on a cross as a substitutionary death for the sins of the world, and that those who come to him by grace through faith can be saved, and they can receive his righteousness, and they can leave their sin at the cross. That's part of your Christology. It has a lot to do with your whole worldview. We study homardiology. Homardiology, H-A. Homardiology, that's the doctrine of sin. I'm not a sinner. I know a few people who sin. What is a sin? What makes something a sin? That's part of your theology. What you believe has a lot to do with your whole life. And I just think that it's interesting to kind of view Joseph as having a theology of running. And I want to challenge us today as we close out to build into our theological framework a theology of running. Let me explain what I mean. You had better understand what God thinks about sexual temptation so that you run from it. There are times for 30-word explanations to two-word invitations, but most of the time we've got to run. And you will not run if you don't have an adequate theology of running. Let's do a little Bible study now and let me help you build your theology of running. I need a well-developed theology of running. And number one, it will be based upon this. Number one, it is based upon the fact that God has spoken to the point. I understand that God has spoken about sexual temptation. Somehow, along the line, as I've referenced, Joseph understood what God thought about it. And it affected his worldview, and it affected his behavior in the midst of the perfect sinful opportunity, filled with sensual delight. But because God had spoken, Joseph reacted a certain way. And so not only along with Joseph's model, but with what God has said to us, you see, we have more information than Joseph had. We have the completed text of Scripture. We have God in detail on all kinds of subjects. And so when God has spoken, I have to alter my behavior to this. 
Point number one in my theology of running is that God has spoken. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. I'll show you what I mean. Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs is a very practical book of wisdom living. And one of the areas that is addressed in detail is this matter of sexual sin. Any kind of behavior sexually outside of the marriage relationship. I want you to see what Proverbs chapter 5 says quickly. We have to look up some verses. We're going to do a little Bible study. And we are building now, know what we're doing. We are building a theology of running for our lives. Chapter 5, Proverbs, verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress, that would be a married woman like Potiphar's wife. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. Oh. But in the end, she is bitter as gall. Sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to Sheol, the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked. And she doesn't even know it. Why do I run in the midst of sexual temptation? Because the adulteress is bitter as gall and she will take you to your grave. She will ruin your life. That's what he's saying. The New Testament speaks to the point even more clearly, believe it or not. And that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And any young people here, particularly, and uh, it surprises young people to know that people over, say, 27 deal with this pressure in their lives. Um, But if you're like... Uh, oh, I don't know, 103 or younger, you ought to underline this verse in your Bible so that you can deal with sexual temptation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 3 through verse 8. These are powerful verses. God speaks directly to the point. He has not been silent on it. He has made himself as clear as clear can be. In many places, the Bible is difficult to understand, but not here. See if you agree. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 It is God's will. Got it? Okay. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, I don't get any more. Sanctified, okay? That's set apart from sin. You could even write it between the lines. It is God's will that you be set apart from sin. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen. You watch it all the time on TV and in the movies. You know exactly what the heathen do. Some of you used to behave that way in your other life before Christ. Believers in Christ don't do this. God has spoken. And that you should avoid sexual immorality. You should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy, that would be free of sin, and that is honorable. That's just right in, like Joseph. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. You see, there is a difference between somebody who knows a holy God, has a relationship with Christ, your sin is forgiven, your family, your church. And there is a higher throne from where I get my information and my commands. And he has spoken. And he said, no, you don't do this. You know why you have to run? You know why you have to run? So that you don't disobey what God has spoken directly to. Why did Joseph run? 
Because sometimes the difference between disobedience and obedience is about three seconds. It's about like two and a half more seconds and I'm a goner. I will run because God has spoken, but I will also run because God sees. And that is evident in Joseph's testimony. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. We'll not spend long on this. We must move through our points. But listen to this. In Joseph's testimony, what did he say immediately? How can I do this wicked thing in the sight of God? Innate in Joseph's understanding of his capitulation to her invitation to move into her bed with her was the fact that God would be watching the whole show. This is an amazing thing, isn't it? How we will not do certain behaviors in front of people we know. There are certain things that we would, we would rather die than be caught in front of the congregation doing. But we will do it right in front of the higher throne. We will do it right in front of a holy God who cannot not see. You ever think about that? He can't just happen to be blinking right then. He can't just happen to be um, turning his head wondering what that guy over there is doing. He has all knowledge at all times, in all places, as fully as knowledge can be known. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation, that is from the most microscopically microscopic small thing, whatever it's called, the smallest thing known to God, not man, is hidden from God's sight. Nothing, the smallest thing to the biggest thing, nothing is hidden in God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, I will have nothing to say. You know why? Because He already knows everything. He will need no explanation. He will need not understand my point of view. He knows my point of view. He knows my thought before I think it. He knows every behavior I've ever done. He knows every time I stood up. He knows every time I've sat down. He knows every time I've laid down. Psalm 139. There is nowhere that you can go that he hasn't been. Matthew says he even knows the number of hairs on our head, and that changes by the minute for many of us. And you're going to go do this? You're going to do this fun thing? You're going to do this too good to pass up thing in front of God? You wouldn't do it in front of your pastor. You wouldn't do it in front of your elders. But you'll do it in front of a holy God. You see why you need a theology of running? Do you see why you need a theology of running? Because the only thing you can do is run, man, run! Because God has spoken to the point and God will see you do it and you will be humiliated and mortified and you will never get over it. You say, well, doesn't God forgive my sin? I can like do this thing because it's so awesome. And then I can say, dear God, in Jesus' name, please forgive me. The Apostle Paul says, God forbid that you would think like that. See, God even knows when we're playing games in our mind and in our hearts. Of course God forgives. Of course the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Of course there is newness of life. And those who are in Christ are new creations. And if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you don't manipulate and play games and provide for the flesh in front of a holy God. It doesn't work that way. It's like playing a shell game or something. 
flip over to your right a few pages to 1 Peter 2.1. And number three, I want you to see that we have to have a theology of running because our flesh is so weak. This is kind of like foundational to the whole reality, isn't it? The fact is, I will give in if I hang around here long enough. The fact is, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Nobody is like Superman. Everybody is capable of yielding to the flesh. And the scripture is clear about that. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Okay, one of the names for Christians in this world is alien. An alien is somebody who's from another place. Usually we think of it as outer space. That's where we're basically going to end up. Actually, it's a rebuild of this world. Alien. Somebody who doesn't fit in. We hear a lot about illegal aliens. What does that mean? It's from another place, not from here. Strangers, foreigners. That's us. This isn't our home. We don't belong here. If you feel really comfortable here in this culture, you're probably not really living for Jesus very well. Look what he says. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. You know what he's saying? Look, people, there's a fight going on and it's a war and it's continual. What's he saying? The believers in Christ, though we are aliens and strangers, and though we are not from this world, and though we're heading to another world, we in this world have this flesh that has such strong desires. We're not even good at turning down the drive through You know? It's like, man, I've got to have a mocha today. You're full of cravings, some good, some that can be turned towards bad. Almost all, all of which, in their base form, were designed for good by God. Do not misunderstand me in any way. I am not saying that sexual activity between a man and a woman who are married is evil in any way. It is a beautiful gift from God. It is the abuse of it that he's talking about. But our flesh is weak, so I have to run. The passions are strong. I have to run. Let's quickly knock out our final two. Number four, sin will devastate. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter four. This will not take long. Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs. We're back in chapter five, excuse me. In Proverbs chapter five, where we were earlier. Psalms, Proverbs, find chapter five. We read the first six verses. And now let's pick it up at verse 7. Notice what it says. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning with verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Who's her? Her is the married woman in verse 3, whose lips drip of honey and whose speech is smoother than oil. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent, and you will say, How I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers, or listen to my instructors, and I have come to the brink of utter ruin in front of the entire assembly. 
It is a short-lived season of pleasure. Moses knew it, and he denied himself the pleasures of sin for a season to live for the kingdom of God, the higher kingdom. And it'll destroy your life. I've admitted from the pulpit before that I'm somewhat of a closet country western fan. Doesn't happen very often. Never happens in front of Janet early. But late at night when I'm driving, coming back from a late night meeting or something, and I've got to stay awake and there's nothing on, I'll end up on an FM country western station and listen for a few minutes until it gets too bad and I turn it. And some time ago I heard a song and I remembered the words and I looked them up. It's a Toby Keith song and it goes like this. It's called, That's My House. The song's set up about a guy who's in his old pickup truck that he fixed himself and he's driving at night in front of his old house where his wife and his kids live with their new dad. He says, I fight the tears back with a smile. Stop and look for a little while. It's plain to see the only thing missing is me. That's my house and that's my car. That's my dogs in my backyard. There's the window to the room where she lays her pretty head. I planted that tree out by the fence not long after we moved in. There's my kids. That's my wife. Who's that man running my life? You think sin doesn't destroy? You think sin doesn't just rip you down? You think that this moment of pleasure... This escape from responsibility, this escape from the pressures of life that you so deserve because you're so overwhelmed is worth it? You see, it's like when God came way back in the beginning. He said, if you, if you just do what is right, won't I receive your sacrifice? But if you don't do what's right... Sin is crouching by your door waiting to devour you. You see, sin has a real impact. It has its upfront moment, but it has all of the tentacles that all the treble hooks come in and stay and hang. Why do I have to have a theology of running? Because if I don't run and I stay, it's going to ruin my life. Closely related to that is point five, and that is I have to run because I want to run to God's plan. We'll not take time to look at it, but boy, we could do a whole other message, couldn't we? On God's plan for a man and a woman and his family. And one of the reasons he brought a man and a woman together is to represent Christ's love for the church, and it's a pure and a holy love. And so there's no room for sin in it. And so my marriage is actually a testimony of Christ and his love for the church. And it's based upon his plan in Genesis that a man is to leave his father and mother. And he's to cleave onto his wife. And the two are to become one flesh. That's the sexual part of marriage. That's God invented, God blessed. And it's all part of his sacred, holy plan. And if I don't run, it's going to be like taking a Rembrandt and spraying it with some kind of rust-oleum and ruining it. The beautiful portrait of Christ and his love for the church is represented in me and my marriage and my love for my wife and the purity and the sanctity of my marriage bed. And that is God's plan of blessing, and it is through that that God works. And you say, but I'm so miserable in it. It's not God's fault. And you will not improve it with the escapades. It's not going to happen. The way of blessing is through obedience to God's word. 
So there it is, your theology of running. I need a well-developed theology of running because God has spoken to the point and I must obey. God sees me and I'd be humiliated and embarrassed. The flesh is weak. I'll give in and break down. Eventually, if I don't run, sin will totally devastate. And finally, I will never live out God's plan of blessing if I don't run, if I stay. Can I address just really quickly anybody who didn't run? Listen. You can start over right now today. You cannot undo the past. And most of us don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be stupid today and really mess things up? Most of us have just believed believed what we saw at the movies. We just believe what we've been watching on TV all our life. That this is just the greatest thing in all the world and she can't wait to have me. Go look in the mirror, dude. She don't want you. She's just lonely. It's a, it's a facade. It's not real. It's a fleeting moment. It's an abuse of what God has given. You can't undo the past and so you don't look to the past and if you've got things hanging on, God and His grace can enable you to be an overcomer. God's will for my life always starts right now. Right now. I don't know how you're going to pull things back together. I don't know what God's going to do through you. I just know you better get back in God's will. Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray... I think there's a couple of responses. One is there are perhaps some who need very much to bow before the Lord in confession of sin. I will not give a public invitation this morning. I will not ask you to raise your hand or to come forward unless you want to come and kneel. That is fine always. It's a very private thing. It's a very private sin. This matter of sexual disobedience. Some of you are so entrenched you're going to need accountability and help. We're here to assist as your pastors and elders. Godly friends will help you. But some of us, we haven't failed in this area really. It's been, you know, moments maybe of thoughts and imaginations. But it's time to really build and latch on to my theology of running. And by God's grace, you can build into your system the Joseph-approved theology of running. Will you ask God to give you the strength to do that? To renew your commitment to what God has said about this. To renew in your life, a whole new reality of God's eyes upon you, a whole new recognition of the weakness of your flesh, a whole new fear for the devastating power of sin, and a whole new desire and passion to have God's plan of blessing fulfilled in your life. That's the theology of running. That's why we do it. Father, you know our hearts and our minds and
Father, I want to thank you that your blood covers all sin. And there's no sinner too dirty to come into your presence again through the forgiveness that is in Christ. And thank you that no life is so broken that it's useless. Thank you that you specialize in remaking us and rebuilding us. And though it may be a painful process, help us to latch on and hold on and let you begin a work in us like never before. Father, would you please guard the hearts and the minds and the imagination of the men of Fellowship Bible Church? Would you please humble and convict the hearts and minds of our married women as well as our unmarried, no matter how lonely or unfulfilled they are? That Christ would be our joy that the higher kingdom would be our goal and that our love would be demonstrated through our obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.